Thanks for joining us today on the Harvest Podcast. Now here's today's message. We pray that it will bless your life as you listen. Well, as you can see, I have something called cowboy boots on. And I am a city boy. I'm from Oklahoma City. But the only reason that I wear them is because my wife keeps calling me hot. And so I'm like, okay, well, I'll keep wearing these boots until you don't like them anymore. So this is... This has been my fashion for the past month now, and uh, I, I'm actually enjoying it. So uh, does anybody else have cowboy boots in the house? All right, all right, come on. All right, I'm not alone. Well, we, uh, you know, as we were running with Reinhard Bonnke after we transitioned out, we decided to move out into the middle of nowhere called Adair, Oklahoma. And in Adair, Oklahoma, we, we bought a, a little bit of land and was living out there in the country. Neighbors, they were Mennonites uh, as farmers, and uh, we had a blast out there. And one thing we weren't prepared for was the active creatures, the active nature that was all around there. I didn't know that cows got loose on a regular basis. And I remember we were coming back from Dallas, coming back home, and one night... Uh, came into the house, and, and we had something uh, called a sub-pump in our basement. Had no clue what that was, but basically the water runs into the basement, and then it's pumped out through a sub-pump. And I was down there checking the sub-pump, figuring the thing out, and I, I, I'm like bending over, and I look up, and there's a shelf, and there's about a four-foot to five-foot snake looking right at me in the eyes. And I'm like, oh, no, we're not dealing with those today. And I did the wisest and smartest thing you could ever do. I called on my wife. And I said, Cheyenne, we got a demon down here in the basement. Come take care of it. Cast out that demon right now. And she came down there ready, full on bucket and some kind of stick or a broom. Came down there ready to take this snake on. And I was like, hold on, hold on. You don't even know if that thing is poisonous. And, you know, come to find out, we did the research. It was like a rat snake. But we didn't know that at the time. And in fact, it was so late at night, it was about one in the morning, we did the, the next smartest thing you could do, which was leave it in there, go to bed, and turn off the lights. And the next morning when I woke up, I went back down there, and there was no snake. And to this day, we have no clue where that snake is. So be praying for us. We need your prayers for that. Well, if you were to ask me, Aaron, what is one of the, the greatest passions that you have? And I would tell you that it's revival. My heart is set on revival. I desire to see a move of God. And I've been raised actually here in Oklahoma City. I have Pentecostal roots, went to Capitol Hill Assembly of God, raised up there. And I continually can tell you memories of seeing a move of God in services Time after time, I ended up going to Sagu for one semester to play football. And I remember there was one week where it was like a spiritual emphasis week. And one of the days was the uh, anniversary. It was like alumni anniversary. And all of the older generations, you know, 50 years, 60 years prior of students were coming back to join us in a morning chapel service. And I couldn't tell you what the pastor preached that day, 
But after he had preached, he looked to the older generation that was there in the midst of the room and began to ask them to pray over the younger generation, began to pray over the students. And the moment that they began to lay hands on those students, and even me, there was like this Holy Ghost bomb that went off in the room. I mean, it was something that I've never really experienced before, and there was these outbursts and outcries of prayer coming from an old gener- older generation into the newer generation. And I'll tell you, it marked me. People were crying all over the place, even after the service had extended for another couple of hours, because God was doing something. And I feel like in this room right now that there is that same kind of spirit, that there is an older generation that has experienced God in this room, that is desiring to see the younger generation come forth. Amen? And I believe that it's here today. I believe God wants to do it again, to bring His Holy Spirit. Amen. And today I pray for that tangible move of God that comes so real and so evident to us, that Jesus is not just a story in the Bible, but He comes alive. He becomes very real to us today. Amen. One of the questions that I propose to you today as I, as I minister is, is this. Why not us and why not now? Think about the revivals in the past. They had no clue what was going to happen to them until it happened. Why not us? Why not now? If we could turn our Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 12. Say amen when you're there. And I think they'll probably... Maybe put it on the screen or make you look for it. I'll go ahead and read aloud. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses, who put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened, for to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, turn to your neighbor and say, that's me. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Now, could you imagine the story of Moses, where he's up on the mountain of Zion, experiencing God, and he comes down and his face is shining. It's shining so bright that he has a veil over his face as he communicates with the people. Now imagine that same glory put on you. As we find right here in the verse that it allows us that the same glory that was on Moses, we're now allowed to obtain, we're allowed to encounter. You know, as a child, one of my... uh, you know, as I was raised up in Sunday school and I, I heard all these Bible stories, sometimes the, as you're raised up, you begin to create in your own mind what these stories, how these stories are depicted until you begin to read it for yourself. And I always thought that Israel was 
at a place of fear because of the glory. But we find in verse 13 that it was because of a fading away of a glory that what Moses had was something that slowly just went away. And Moses did not want to show them something that would slowly fade away. In fact, you and I today, in in this society, in this world, we experience all the time a fading away of a glory. For instance, men, you dye your hair when it turns gray. The glory, the old self, begins to appear and you want to cover it up. The same thing, and I appreciate this about women. I so appreciate this about women, but we all call it makeup. I appreciate it. How many men love their wives to wear makeup? Okay, not, uh, just one. Okay. Oh man, we're in trouble now. Well, I'll just skip to the next part. But we deal with this idea of a fading way of glory. We never want to show off something that will fade away. But we know because of the cross, it now allows us to experience a glory that never ends and never fades. And when the legitimate glory of God comes, may we never try to manipulate it, the authentic presence of God. May we never try to use something that will try to substitute the very glory. You know, one of the things that we always see in, in ministry is, is something uh, that you, you're starting to see in the younger generations is, is something like fog machines. Now, they're amazing, they're awesome, but may, may they never be the substitute of the very glory of God. And often we think we have to create something to continually host the presence of God. We have to create a ritual. You know, many times that we see in history's past, when an encounter of God took place, we tried to create a ritual of doing the same thing to try to recreate what God was doing. There was a woman named Susie who was cooking up a delicious pot roast in her house, and she was talking with her husband, and her husband was kind of detailing how she was doing it, And he watched as she cut off the end of the pot roast and put it in a second slow cooker. And her husband asked, honey, why do you always do that? Why do you always cut off the end and put it in a second slow cooker? And she said, well, I I don't really know. You know, this is what I've always done, and this is what I've been taught from my mother. And so Susie calls up her mom and says, mom, why do you always cook? And cut off the end of the pot roast and put in a second slow cooker. And she said, well, that's a good question. That's what I was taught by my mother. So Susie calls up her grandmother and says, Grandma, why do you put the second part of the, or the end of the pot roast into the second slow cooker? And her grandma said, well, honey, we, we were poor. We only had one, sl- or, uh, one small slow cooker, so we had to put it, another one in the second one. May we never try to do the same thing over and over unless it's the legitimate presence of God that's leading us. May we go after something greater than what has just been told to us. 
as I have shared my past encounters with you, you know, one of them was I was even raised going to Turner Falls, going to kids camp, to youth camp. And I remember even a time where we were, uh, it was like being ministered as a kid, being ministered to puppets from the stage. And I remember there was an altar call where people, where, where they asked us to come down. And at the altar call, I remember being caught up in the presence of God, shaking on the ground, eight years old, wondering what God was doing. It must have been around midnight when the counselors gathered us up as kids and took us into the, the dorm rooms. And I remember the lights were out. 16 of us young boys were laying there. And one of, them began to, one of us began to cry. It wasn't because he was scared of his mom or scared and wanted to see his mom or scared of the dark. But it's because he was having a legitimate encounter with God. Next thing I know, in the dark, I begin to hear a second kid begin to cry. And it was like they so wanted what they were experiencing in that tabernacle to begin to happen in the dorm room. And from the second boy, all of a sudden there was a third. From the third, all of a sudden there was a fourth. Until the entire room was filled with eight-year-old and nine-year-olds, like praying and seeking after God in complete darkness, weeping after uh, more for God. The counselors didn't even know what to do, so they're like going from person to person, just laying on their hands. You know, they didn't know what else to do. Like God was doing something. But in the midst of that, I pray that I never would create a ritual out of encountering God. I'm so thankful of my Pentecostal heritage that I've been surrounded in. But if all I have to pass on to this next generation is stories of my encounters, then I'm robbing this next generation from a legitimate encounter with the glory of God for themselves. I can tell you right now that this younger generation, they're not looking for another light show or fog machines, but they're looking for the legitimate encounter with God. And I ask you this, why not us, why not now? If the world is going to be shaken... It's not going to be by my stories or the stories of my grandfather or the stories of even a Sousa revival. But it's going to come by us encountering God for ourselves. Legitimately encountering Him every single day. You know, one thing about the church that for the past hundred years we've been very good at is we create very good programs and systems. And even our churches have become very modern for the unbeliever to come in. But when the unbeliever comes in, will they participate in the discipleship programs and participate in the worship service where they get to encounter the glory? And will they find glory upon individuals? Because it's not just about the stage, but it's about the individuals encountering God. When I was in India earlier in April, after the awesome crusade that we had, we went out to the streets to just evangelize people to people. And I remember coming across a man, giving him the gospel of Jesus. And he ended up asking me, and he was Hindu, so of course he's serving 330 million gods within his uh, religion. And he asked me, he says, tell me, why do you come over here and share about your God? And I said, well, let me ask you a question. 
If you were to encounter one of your gods, just one of your gods, and he was to show you an affectionate love that you've never felt before, if you were to encounter his very presence, if he was to perform miracles all around you, wouldn't you want to share about him all around you? And he said, well, yeah, I guess you're right. Friends, as we live our lives, may we never, never stop sharing this good gospel. As we experience the glory of God, may we not just keep it for ourselves. May we spread this good news of Jesus. Jesus must be shared. If you could turn with me to uh, Matthew chapter 16, verse 13. I'll go ahead and, and kind of talk about it. You know, among the disciples, there seemed to be like one radical one that was willing to go beyond any of the other disciples to take that leap of faith. And every time this one disciple took that leap of faith, it always got God's attention. For instance, this man, Peter, was on a boat in the midst of his disciples, and they're in this storm. And out in the distance, they see something like a ghost. They think it's Jesus. They think it's not. And Peter yells out and says, Lord, if that is you, tell me to come. So he hears these words from Jesus, come. And he begins to step over the lip of the boat. And all of a sudden, walking on something that seems so impossible, but all of a sudden made possible. And he's looking into the eyes of Jesus as he's doing this. And in this passage, we find the disciples in this incredible testing time. But it's only Peter that takes the step of faith and reaps the reward. Matthew chapter 16, verse 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Could you imagine the disciples being asked this question by Jesus, and they are going back in memories of their experience with Jesus from the multiplication of food to the miracles from city to city, and even Peter thinking about this question and remembering the time that he is walking on water, looking into the eyes of Jesus, only to be rebuked when he gets back on the boat because he also sank when he was on the water because he took his eyes off Jesus and began to recognize more of the storm. So in this moment that Jesus is asking this question, I could imagine Peter saying, no, not this time. Not this time will I be found questioning my faith. And all of a sudden he yells out, You are Christ, the Son of the living God. 
And immediately Jesus begins to bless him with the keys of the kingdom. The very next chapter, not only do we find Peter getting blessed with the keys of the kingdom, being recognized as the rock, but we find him also encountering the moment that Jesus takes three disciples, Peter being one of them, up to a mountain to be trans- Jesus to be transfigured. And as he's on the mountain, he experiences with Jesus that Jesus' face begins to turn white or shines bright like the sun. And his clothes begin to turn white as wool. And Peter is experiencing all of this. This is just a taste of what I believe is what is said that Paul says in verse 18 of 2 Corinthians. And I'll go back to it. And when we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Peter was getting to experience a capacity of going from glory to glory. And it was out of his hunger that he began to experience the glory of God. Now listen to this, your measure of hunger will begin to reveal the measure of glory that comes upon you. I'll say that again, your measure of hunger reveals the measure of glory that comes upon you. If I could get the band to come back up. As I was just a couple years ago, 18 years old, I was kind of one of those Christian weirdos that continually was in prayer sought after the Lord. My mom down here can even testify that when I got a TV for Christmas, I devoted it to the Lord and all I'd watch was like TBN and Daystar. And I would just spend time in prayer and seeking the Lord, but I wanted the presence. I didn't want anything else. I wanted the presence of God. And what was so unique was it became so evident to me to the point where I would wake up in the morning and I would say, good morning, Holy Spirit. And his presence would just come all over me. Day after day. And I began to say, God, show me more. Show me more. There must be more than this. And all of a sudden, I began to have a passion for evangelism. I wanted to see the miracles. I wanted to see the miracles on the street. For six months, I contended for the glory of God. To reveal himself in healings. I even went out to, the, to like Walmart, even showed up at the OU Medical Center to pray for people in the emergency room. And for six months, I saw nothing, but I kept believing. I would kept saying, God, you're real. Why not us? Why not now? And at the end of that six months, I was in a place of prayer with a group of youth. That night, I can tell you, we ended up seeing six miracles take place. The first one being a girl who came to me and said, I have an inner skin disease in my inner thighs and the doctors say I'm going to have it for the rest of my life. But when you pray for me, God's going to heal me. I mean, when somebody tells you that, you kind of have to just say, okay, like, all right, let's go for it. Like, let's just go for it. And so we prayed for her or I prayed for her. And she said, I feel it leaving my body. Now, I have no clue what that meant, leaving her body. 
The next morning when I saw her, I said, how does it feel? And she said, well, it's peeling off like dead skin. It's just going away. New skin is being reformed on my body. There was a young boy who had an issue and had a brace on his, on his arm. We prayed for him, instantly healed. No more pain, no more issues, completely gone. On the ground doing push-ups. Another boy who had, was born with an issue um, similar to uh, cerebral palsy. Half his body lagged, was not able to function completely well. We began to pray for him. He said, I feel something like fire in my leg. We began to keep on praying. All of a sudden, his leg, which was shifted to the side, all of a sudden began to come over and come correctly in alignment with the other. We said, well, you need to test this out. He took off running down the hallway. He's never been able to do it in his life. And from that moment on, I have seen miracles after miracles. In fact, I get surprised when I don't see the miracles because God is so good. He is so good. Could everybody go ahead and stand with me? I ask the question, why not us, why not now? Could this be the moment that we seek a revival for Oklahoma City and it comes out of Harvest Church? We have an altar call down here. Sometimes it becomes repetitive, but I believe that there is significant things that happen when we lay down our lives down at the altar. And I just want to ask you, do you want more? Are you hungry for more? And we're going to go into worship real quick, but if that's you, I want you to come down. If you're hungry for more, as I've been sharing these stories, is it yearning in your heart? Do you want to see a move of God? Holy Spirit, come. Holy Spirit, come. As we are, as people are coming down, let's go ahead and, and engage in worship, see what God is doing.